0: Hi, I'm Cindy Zhang, and this is Tell Me Muse, a podcast where I interview recent McGill graduates to figure out what exactly is classics. Today, I'm really excited to be speaking with 2020 McGill grad, Sarah Merker. She has done some fascinating work with Apuleius, who is a Latin author writing in the second century CE in what is now known as the Second Sophistic Movement. So we're going to break down all this jargon throughout the podcast itself. But just to preface, he is best known for writing two texts. One is called the Metamorphoses, or the Golden Ass, as in donkey. And the other is the Apologia, which is what we'll be talking about today. And it's a courtroom defense speech, which is known as an apology. Perhaps the most famous one is Socrates and his own self-defense in court. So Apuleius was also brought to trial for completely different reasons. He had married a rich, older widow by the name of Pudentilla, and she, from a previous marriage, had two sons, one who later became a companion and student of Apuleius, and he was the one who initially introduced Pudentilla to Apuleius. And the other who was younger and who, after Apuleius' marriage to Pudentilla, was convinced by his uncle, Sicinius Emilianus to bring Apuleius to court on the charge that he had used magic to somehow enchant Pudentilla into falling in love with him and inheriting some of her wealth. So he has to defend himself in court... And he writes this really funny speech that gets passed down to us, and Sarah has been researching it a lot in preparation for her PhD at Cornell, which she has just started this past September. And one last thing before we jump in, I was trying some new recording setup. I was also in my Montreal apartment instead of in my very quiet suburban Vancouver housing. So the audio leaves something to be desired, but I guarantee that the content more than makes up for it. So bear with us. And allow me to introduce Sarah Merker. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your interests, your hobbies, your background.
1: Right. My name is Sarah Merker. I graduated McGill University in 2020 with an honors classics major and I took a year off after that and then decided to apply to PhD programs and I'm about to start my first year in Cornell's program.
0: Fantastic. That's so exciting. And well just to rewind a bit and go into your past at McGill, how did you end up at McGill and specifically in the classics program?
1: So Both of them were pretty easy choices because my mom is from just north of Montreal. She went to McGill herself. And in looking at universities, I wanted to be in a city. And I knew the city of Montreal because I've been going there my whole life. I have family who lives there. It felt kind of a safe choice. I knew Montreal was a great city. So I decided to just go for it and head off to McGill. And I actually knew I wanted to be a classics major after taking Latin in high school. It was actually my worst class, but I didn't let that deter me because I saw just this incredible depth in being able to combine the studies of literature and language and history and religion. And I knew that there was just more to the story than I was being told. So I wanted to just kind of dive in head first. And by the end of my first year, I was completely sold. I was so happy with my decision and it's just kind of taken off since then.
0: I feel like this is a common thread for us classicists. It's just like getting pummeled by one of the two ancient languages and being like this. This is it. This is my career path.
1: Yes, exactly. There's just there's just so much to learn. It just feels like I could spend my whole life studying classics and it'll never be enough.
0: What about your McGill experience sort of stands out to you? Any like specific moments or maybe clubs or conversations that you've had that sort of had a lasting impact on you?
1: Yeah, so of course being a member of the CSA was incredible and it's a great community. We were all girls at the time, so that was really fun. And I'd say that there were two summer experiences that really led me to the decision of wanting to go ahead and go to graduate school for classics which was going on Professor Totten's archaeology dig at Silapia the summer after my sophomore year. And then the summer after my third year, I was a research assistant for Professor Wen in the religion and classics departments, which is where I actually first encountered the kind of literary period that I intend on studying from here on out. So both of those experiences showed me sides of classics that I hadn't studied as much, One of which was obviously archaeology and an appreciation of material culture, and the second being religion and this kind of late period of Greek literature called the Second Statistic.
0: Your interests are actually quite unique in that they sort of bridge the strict categories that we have in university. So it's a little bit religion. It's a little bit archaeology. Do you have any advice for undergrads who might be similarly interested in exploring interdisciplinary fields like this?
1: Yeah, I mean, the way that it kind of all made sense to me was, you know, in our own lives, there's never really a clear division between literature and history and religion and language. They're kind of all happening at once in our regular daily lives, and it just feels like the appropriate way to approach any ancient text or any ancient object. Because, you know, these were all things that people were exploring alongside all of the other parts of their life that are happening at the same time, which usually always influence the product that we're looking at today.
0: And so now turning towards the future and your area of specialties for your PhD, what made you realize after you finished McGill, maybe during your gap year, that you wanted to jump into a PhD? And that you wanted to focus on the Greek world and, in particular, the second Sophistic era.
1: So, as I said, I first encountered the second Sophistic the summer after my third year, before my last year at McGill. And I found a text that I found really interesting. But during my senior year, I kind of chickened out of applications because I hadn't read enough scholarship on this topic to really flesh out a great proposal. And I think that that was a wise decision on my part because, you know, After my senior year, during the summer before my gap year, I was able to download a lot of scholarship and read a lot of books on this text that I'm interested in and really become educated and know that this was truly what I wanted to do and have a clear vision. So then I decided to apply. And I think having a year off was rehabilitating for me in many ways. You know, university can often take a toll, especially with COVID happening at the end of my senior year. That was kind of flying by the seat of your pants kind of situation. So I needed the break.
0: I think what often goes unnoticed and what COVID made me realize with all the remote learning is just how much knowledge is stored within the McGill Library database and how much free knowledge is actually out there. You could just download
1: all these eBooks. It's funny because I didn't know exactly when my McGill Library membership was gonna expire after graduating. So I just speed downloaded every single relevant article and book I could find. It didn't even matter if it was tangentially related. I just downloaded all of the literature. And then I basically had so much time to kind of go through all of them and just learn a ton and be ready to apply in fall.
0: and fall. Then let's just get right into it, get into the weeds of Apuleius and the second Sophistic, which is basically your research topic for your PhD program. Tell us about this entire sophistic framework. We use the term second-sophistic to sort of talk about the second to third century CE. This is under the Roman Empire, as in the Roman monarchy, but you have all these Greek authors who are still relevant in the Greek world and are influenced in the Roman authors, and there's this transcultural, linguistic influence happening. How do we understand the second-sophistic? What are some key characteristics of it? And- Who are some of the individuals that sort of should spring to mind?
1: So the second statistic, broadly speaking, is the revival of Athenian rhetoric from the 5th and 4th centuries BC. At the time in Athens, this kind of rhetoric was often very political, and it was often very situated in current events. The second sophistic, on the other hand, in the second to third centuries AD, you're under the Roman Empire, so there's a lot more censorship. There tends to not be as many political texts at this time in rhetoric, but it's more about instructing and entertaining your audience through rhetoric. So basically, I would say that the second sophistic also is at a point far removed enough from classical Athens that the Greeks are now attempting to receive their own culture in a way that they are modeling themselves on it and even playing with the forms and ideas used by Attic writers in order to create their own current identity that is based off of their cultural past. It was also one of the most popular avenues of education I know Hadrian's son was educated in the sophistic method of rhetoric, and one of the other main qualities of second-sophistic literature is just erudition to the highest degree, being able to cite kind of arcane sources and quote literary works offhand. A huge thing about declamation, which is kind of off-the-cuff rhetoric in the second-sophistic, was getting a kind of random prompt and just saying, You know, go tell me why Helen didn't start the Trojan War. And you would have to just start right away and declaim and bring in literary knowledge and, you know, past history, past literary references in order to back up your arguments. And this was kind of the model of education and rhetoric at the time. And going on to the diverse authorship of the Second Sophistic. The Greek world is huge at this point. People all the way from Greece to Middle East are speaking and writing Greek and are extremely Hellenized. You know, of course, this is after the days of Alexander the Great. So, you know, the, the whole Greek world is huge at this point. So when we talk about second sophistic authors, we're not necessarily talking about Greek authors. For example, Apollos writes in Latin, but he's from North Africa, a kind of second sophistic adjacent author, I would say is Lucian, and he's from Syria. You also have authors, some of the most famous Second Sophistic rhetoricians, like Alias Aristides and Dio Those are Those guys are both from Asia Minor. So when we talk about the revival of Greek literature, we're not talking about Greece per se, but we're talking about the Greek-speaking world, which is a little different.
0: And so just for geographic context, when we talk about the Greek Hellenized world, are we including Rome in that? Or is it just the Roman provinces that cover what used to be Alexander's empire?
1: So Rome loves their own identity, but they, broadly speaking, pride themselves more on war and their own Latin literature. Yet they do view Greece as kind of the heart and soul of culture and art and literature. And it has been that way since, you know, Virgil mentions it in the Aeneid, um, that the Romans were made for war and the Greeks were made for art. So I don't think that the Romans have any qualms with this revival of Greek literature. Actually, even more to that point, if you were Roman and you were well educated in Greek, that was actually a huge, a huge example of your cultural capital and how educated you are to be educated in these Greek authors from both the past and the present.
0: And for the public declamations or the rhetoric that was sort of inherent in this atmosphere, is it something that could only be accomplished through Greek, or were there Latin versions of it as well?
1: Well, of course, you have huge rhetoricians like Cicero in the Roman world, but Again, the second statistic is kind of looking back at Attic Greek. They're writing Attic Greek at a time where people weren't speaking Attic Greek. So it's kind of like this whole other language because, you know, most Greek speaking people are speaking Koine at this point. And so being able to know Attic Greek is kind of this other form of Greek that is highly educated and that is kind of, you know, outdated, but still highly respected. And it was a very specific type of education.
0: Let's talk a little bit about Apuleius now. So he is a resident of a Roman colony at this point in North Africa. So Rome has, of course, expanded way past its original territory boundaries of a tiny city in Italy and now has influence all over the Mediterranean world. What is special about North Africa? Who is Apuleius? Give us the whole background on this guy.
1: Apuleius is kind of in a unique situation. He's from the greater province of Africa Proconsularis, which is where Carthage is. And so Apollos probably didn't grow up speaking either Greek or Latin. You know, there isn't a ton of proof for any of this, but you have to imagine that, you know, you would speak Punic and then maybe Latin, and then Greek would kind of be the next step after that. But when Apollaeus was young, he moved to Carthage, which was a huge cultural hub in North Africa and he was from a pretty wealthy family. He had money to spend on his travels and his education, which is exactly what he did. And so he became well-versed in Latin and Greek. And his decision to write in Latin is pretty natural, but it is so engaged with the movement of the second sophistic that it does strike me as interesting that he's writing in Latin and not Greek. He clearly knows his Greek really well, and so that's something I want to look into. But he's kind of in this in-between situation where he's not native to either one of those cultures per se. And
0: he is, of course, the author of your main text of study, The Apologia, which is a forensic text. So that's a speech that was given in court in person and then afterwards written down and then perhaps modified and then distributed to the public. What can you tell us about The Apologia and sort of the context that brought it about. Who are the characters involved in this dispute, in this court case, and just all of the
1: juicy details of the relationships, the intrigue, all of that. So to give you the broadest explanation, Apuleius is charged with administering love potions to make this older widow, who's inherited a lot of money, fall in love with him and marry him. But Before I even get into any of that in the magic, you have to know the background of the family drama and why Apuleius spins this charge as pretty ridiculous. (laughs) So basically, you have this older widow, Pudentilla, who I want to put her in about her 40s, where Apuleius might be about 30. Her husband has since died, and she's inherited a lot of money. Now, to be able to administer that money... You, generally speaking, need a husband to do that. And she's held on to being single for a pretty long time. And it seems that the brother of her deceased husband, Sikinius Amelianus, wants to marry her himself and um, inherit that money that was in his family that was passed on to Pudentilla. Now, Pudentilla also has two sons who are very prominent in this situation. She has a son, Sikinius Pontianus, who befriended Apuleius abroad while he was being educated and was kind of seen as Apuleius's protege. However, he has since died at the time of this court case, and she has a younger son, Pudens, who has since come under the wing of Sicinius Amelianus, Apuleius's accuser. Apuleius kind of paints him as being Moralistically defiled by Ascanius Aemilianus, who is charging Apuleius for basically stealing his woman because now he won't get to inherit that money that his brother passed on to Putantilla. They even charge Apuleius with killing Pontianus, but that charge is quickly dropped before this case because it is completely ridiculous. They were nowhere near each other at the time he died. Now, also as a more minor character. There's this guy, Herennius Rufinus, whose daughter was married to Pontianus. And so whatever money Pontianus would have inherited from Pudentilla would have been shared with his wife. However, Pontianus dies. And now it seems like he wants his same daughter to marry Pudens to set himself up in the same situation again. So it's really crazy. And Pudentilla is kind of just this relatively, you know, she can't show up in court for any of this because she's a woman and she has all of this kind of immobile power and she's being tugged back and forth between these money hungry men. And originally Pontianus saw all of this and went to his friend Apaleas and said, you're a good guy. I can trust you. I know you won't squander my mom's money. Please marry her. Apparently he changed his mind at some point and then changed it back before his death. But that's how Apollaeus kind of entered this situation in marrying Pudentilla, And then they had a wedding in the countryside and didn't invite any of these people who, <laughs> who hate him. <laughs> and so that's kind of the family drama. And Apuleius being this kind of far-traveled philosophical rhetorician who kind of works his magic with words, per se. He's being charged with administering love potions. To this woman to make her marry him and you know they say he's so much younger than her she wasn't going to get married before this guy came in out of nowhere etc cetera, et cetera. i can talk about how funny some of the charges are a little bit later but that's kind of the basic story going on it's kind of this crazy family drama in the backdrop of these magical charges that are being brought against him
0: i mean the whole context is just i mean the soap opera is writing itself at this point <laughs>
1: Exactly, it should be a TV show.
0: <laughs> so just because there are so many characters involved in this setting, I want to emphasize the key players here. So we have Apuleius, who is the main defendant getting accused, brought into court. He has, at this point, already married Prudentilla, which was the wealthy widow that you referenced. And Emilianus is the, I guess you can call him the uncle of Pudentilla's two children. And the main one is Pudens, the minor who under, I guess, Aemilius' urging is bringing this case to court.
1: If I can say the reason the case is being brought under Putin's name is because Putin's is 17 and he's technically still a minor. And you can't be charged with lying under oath if you're a minor. And so Aemilianus can lie all he wants because the case isn't actually under his name. It's under Putin's name. But Putin's can't be punished anyway because he's a minor. So they can bring these false charges against Apuleius with basically no repercussions.
0: It's just so crafty. So the main charges actually brought against Apuleius here, just to reiterate what you said, are the magic charges. The idea that he had charmed Pudentilla somehow into marrying him to inherit her great wealth. So just to sort of bring us back into the ancient mindset... How serious was this charge of magic? Because to us right now, it just sounds funny. It sounds humorous. But to them, this was actually something quite serious. Provide us some background there.
1: Right. So magic in the ancient world was incredibly feared for its secrecy, for its power, supposedly. And there were a lot of laws against magic that would imply death. For example, the Lex Cornelia that were instituted by Sella in the 180s BC. That law was usually for someone who killed another person with drugs. However, Appalice didn't kill Putintilla. So I don't know if he would have been executed if found guilty, but he certainly could have suffered something along the lines of exile if he was caught, which would be pretty condemning for a well-known author like him. We've seen it happen before with figures like Ovid. It's always exile to go to. It was so easy back then. Exactly. So this was quite serious, and you can't really see the seriousness of it because of the attitude Apuleius takes in the courtroom, which is to kind of prove these charges as ridiculous and kind of laugh his accusers off the stage. What counts as magical rituals? So magic at this point is incredibly vague. You know, magic is, broadly speaking, I would say Religious practices that are not under the umbrella of what is socially accepted by the Roman Empire, but that can be anything from curse tablets to love filters to just more foreign or local religious practices that are not formally recognized by Rome. Really, really so much falls under this term of magic that it's difficult to pinpoint what exactly that means. And they didn't have, at this point, a kind of broad enough vocabulary to differentiate between these different kinds of magic, so to speak. Another kind of magic would be, you know, the wisdom inherited from the Persian magi. That's kind of the original, I guess, definition of magos. But these are just priests from Persia, like Zoroaster, who figures like Pythagoras or Orpheus would have visited way back in the day. They weren't necessarily these kind of nefarious figures. They were just practitioners of Oriental wisdom and were more like a philosopher, which I can get to later. So the definition of magic is just, I will just stress that it's really hard to pinpoint, it's very specific to each situation. But these love filters that Apalaeus was tried under, those would have definitely been considered this kind of evil sort of magic at the time.
0: Yeah, I sense just the thinnest amount of xenophobia happening here.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: And what is the relation between magic and these so-called mystery rites that sprung up all over the place in the ancient world?
1: There isn't a broad connection in the actual rituals per se, but I would say mystery cults more in Rome's early days were feared for some of the same reasons, that being their secrecy, their nocturnal setting, and just not knowing what powers they held. This kind of fear of secrecy, I would say, is kind of the broad comparison I can make between mystery cults and magic, and also that they aren't public standard religious practices. However, by the second century AD, mystery cults have been widely accepted by the upper echelons of society. It was actually kind of a big acquisition of cultural capital if you were initiated into some of these mystery cults and had these secrets under your belt. So there are some comparisons, but I would say magic is still feared at this time. But mystery cults, on the other hand, have been widely accepted. They'll fall out of fashion again a couple centuries later, but at this point in time, they're widely accepted, I would say.
0: So there is an area of overlap in which some mystery cults did have magical tokens and practices, but not all of them did?
1: Yeah, so the mystery tokens I am talking about, I would say that they're less used to filter magic powers through, and they're more like almost souvenirs of your initiation because you would travel to these far off places to be initiated into a mystery cult and you want some kind of memory or token of that experience something that you can hold in your hand that you can remember your experience by and maybe perhaps channel prayer through and just kind of have it as proof that you were initiated maybe put it in a shrine we'll get to that But I would say that they were not so much used for any kind of ritual that was supposed to cause some evil end.
0: Going back to the statement you made about how the upper echelons of society were starting to normalize mystery cults, did this ever elevate the status of mystery cults so that you had a more elite class of mystery cult religions as opposed to the more base regular religion that everybody adhered to?
1: absolutely i mean first of all mystery cults are set in pretty diverse locations so you have to be able to travel a far way to even get to these places and be initiated and the secrecy that these cults held were a way to kind of differentiate yourself from the kind of uninitiated regular joe you know you know some secrets that someone else doesn't know and you're not going to tell them do you know the real dionysus Exactly. So, (laughs) so do you know his secret name or his secret, you know, something like that. I would even cite as an example, the great gods of Samothrace in the Hellenistic period when the cult was becoming more popular. They just started referring to these gods they were worshiping as the great gods. They wouldn't even tell regular people the names of the gods because even that became such a kind of secret, such a barrier between those who are initiated and those who are not. And it's a kind of way to differentiate class. Right.
0: And this is actually a key point that helps Apuleius make his case in court. And we'll get to all of that in just a little bit. To sort of ease us into the court case and his arguments there, can you provide us with a brief overview of the range of the charges brought against him? So there were, among other things, accusations of his beauty, his obsession with fish, which were thought to have aphrodisiac qualities, and then just all of this wrapped up in the claim that he had charmed Prudentilla into the marriage. So what are the extremes? Like the more rational, okay, these are serious, Claims and charges, and the preposterous, hilarious ones?
1: Yeah. So I would say the more preposterous, hilarious ones occur in the first half of the speech. Now, the speech was about three hours to read. So there's a lot in there. But I'd say the first half of the speech is dedicated to non Pudentilla related charges that they brought against him. And the second half of the speech is more tightly wound against his relationship with Pudentilla and proving that he didn't seduce her with love potions. So I kind of like the first bit where you get the ridiculous charges unrelated to really the case at all. Apollius kind of comes in blazing and and he says, you know, you've accused me of being too handsome. My hair is too coiffed. I look in the mirror too much and I use toothpaste. Are you kidding me? Is it a crime to be so good looking? Should you ever scorn the gifts of the gods, as Homer says? And so he kind of starts out guns blazing, but he is kind of with his boisterousness, he's kind of veiling the fact that some of these charges are actually pretty serious. So, for example, the toothpaste charge, you know, the same ingredients were used to make toothpaste as could have been used in magical potions, for example, frankincense and myrrh. Those could have been used just as easily in a magical potion as in toothpaste. So it's kind of implying his possession of these ingredients, but he kind of blows past all of these things. And he kind of takes up the same strategy with all of these charges in the first half of the speech where he doesn't necessarily deny them, but he kind of spins them to look either ridiculous or he spins them to actually be proof of his status as a philosopher. So, going on to his love of fish, he's accused of performing vivisections of certain vagina shaped mollusks that looked like they could have been used for love of potions because of their shape. And he kind of turns this charge around and cites people like Aristotle who performed dissections and studied nature and tried to discover, you know, the forms of different animals. And he turns it to kind of look like a philosophical inquiry more than a proof of his being a magician and acquiring magical ingredients. So that's kind of his general strategy in the first half of the speech. And a lot of these can be pretty funny honestly. I mean, his boisterousness is really, it's kind of overly confident for the courtroom, but he is trying to mostly just impress his judge, Claudius Maximus, who was likely a stoic tutor of Marcus Aurelius. And he probably had the sole decision of either condemning or acquitting Apollaeus. And so knowing that this guy is a philosopher Apuleius is appealing to philosophy and going off on these philosophical tangents of all the philosophers who've done similar things in the past is pretty much meant to put himself on the same level as Claudius Maximus and make it seem like, you know, these guys are pretty similar and he would understand his love of philosophical inquiry. So it is kind of working for his advantage in a very sly way. I think this is a good point to
0: maybe clarify what we mean by philosophy and philosophers, because it is a little bit distinct from the term nowadays. This kind of philosophy entails questions about the world and living and like all those ontological questions, but also natural sciences as well. So like experimentation would be included in philosophy, mathematics. Could you elaborate on that?
1: Exactly. Science, medicine, different kinds of math... These were all different avenues of philosophy you could study. And Apollos shows himself to be interested in almost all of them, conveniently. (laughs) So, you know, there's another piece of evidence about this boy who he was accused of forcing him to have a seizure. And he says, no, I was actually just kind of trying to cure this boy and study his illness purely from a philosophical medicinal perspective, trying to help this kid. And so he again and again appeals to different kind of avenues of philosophy in order to defend himself. And also what is very relevant is the fact that there's a kind of difference between everyday goetic magic like love potions and defixiones and more lofty philosophical magic. So he even says something to the effect of, if you accuse me of being a magician, I actually don't deny that, but I take it as a compliment because you're putting me on the same pedestal as people like Pythagoras and Orpheus and Plato, who respected and inquired into these philosophical Persian magi who were well-versed in wisdom and the Chaldean oracles. All these kind of populations of oriental philosophers. And so he says, you know, it just proves that I'm a philosopher even more to call me a magician if you take it in the proper academic sense and not the kind of degenerate everyday sense that someone like Emilianus would know magic as. So he's playing with the ambiguity of the definition of magic and kind of marrying it with his self-image as a philosopher, which is really interesting and is a huge part of his defense as well.
0: So there's actually, I guess, a hierarchy of the kinds of magic you can be
1: engaged in? Exactly, yeah. And he does this kind of, he creates all these dichotomies where he's putting himself and philosophy, and education on this kind of higher pedestal, whereas his accuser, Sicinius Aemilianus, is on this lower level as a rustic boar who is only bringing these accusations against Apuleius because he doesn't know the true meaning of his philosophical inquiries and is wrongly interpreting his actions because of his lack of education. And so he creates this dichotomy with almost everything, putting himself and Claudius Maximus, the judge, on the top and his accusers on the bottom as kind of uneducated bores, which is, you know, really mean, but it works for him.
0: At one point in the speech, he actually talks about tokens, these magical tokens he's accused of possessing. What are these tokens?
1: Exactly. So this is what we talked a little bit about earlier, these mystery tokens that were You know, we would imagine to be souvenirs one would get from being initiated into a mystery cult, and you would bring them home. And the backdrop of this is he's accused of defiling the deceased Pontianus' private shrine by putting magical items wrapped in linen in it. And Apollius kind of says, you know, Emilianus, this is yet again another example of you misinterpreting my actions due to your lack of education. Because, little did you know, I actually was keeping my mystery tokens in this private shrine to keep them secret and to worship them in private. You wouldn't know anything about this, but I bet lots of people in the audience and Claudius Maximus know exactly what I'm talking about. And I can't tell you any more here because I am pious and I need to keep the secrets. But all of you other guys, if you want to talk about this later and have been initiated into the same cult as me, feel free to have that conversation with me. But he leaves Amelianus out of it because he says, you know, you're just an uninitiated, you just don't understand. And so again, he's using this kind of dichotomy of high and low in this context of the mystery cult tokens in order to exclude Aemilianus from any form of religious respect and even calls him Mezentius, who is the villain of the Aeneid who is known for his impiety. He nicknames him as Mezentius, and also as Charon, the ferryman of the underworld, because Charon is kind of known for his greed and taking two coins to let people pass, which is exactly what Emilianus is trying to do. So he really takes it to town.
0: Is there any evidence of the, the tokens themselves being present at this court case, or was Apelles just referring to them offhandedly?
1: Probably not. He would have never displayed these in public. That would have been impious. And he even points to the fact that these items were kept at home. So it seems like they would have been used in domestic religion. And it's also important that he put this in the private lorarium of Pontianus and not in the main family shrine of the household. So this was not put next to the panates and the lares, the whole family, you know, the slaves and freedmen and family members alike would worship together. This was in a private shrine. And there's actually more evidence to other households having private shrines. So, for example, Severus Alexander, Roman emperor, he had apparently the figurines of Abraham, Christ, you know, Marcus Aurelius also had a private shrine where he had figurines of his favorite philosophers that he would worship. So this is kind of making a division between different areas of the household where there would be shrines that the family had limited access to. Apuleius says that only himself, Pontianus, and the custodian of the library knew about the shrine. And so it's a perfect place to really put these mystery tokens because you're not revealing their identity to anyone in the household. And it was kind of a private place to worship. So that's important. So given what we
0: have of the speech, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like it's okay to reference the mystery cult that you belong to and sort of talk about the objects and the rituals indirectly, but to never go into details.
1: Yeah, I mean, Apuleius mentions the cult of Liber Pater, but he doesn't necessarily use the words, I am in that cult. He just says, for example, the cult of Liber Pater... (laughs) Yeah. Tell us a little bit about them. Who are they? So the cult of Liber Pater can basically be equated with Dionysus or Bacchus. And you can see in, for example, the Villa of the Mysteries at Pompeii, there are paintings of whipping being used in the initiation rituals. And there's a great article I read that proves that, you know, a whipping top and a bullhorn would have been some of the mystery objects that were used. And These not only will remind you of the whipping that occurred at the initiation, but these are also children's toys. And this is important because Dionysus's kind of other origin story is that before he was Dionysus, the son of Zeus and Sumel, he was Dionysus, the son of Zeus and Persephone. And when he was a baby, Hera was jealous and distracted him with child's toys so that the Titans could dismember him and rip him apart and destroy him. And then he was later reborn as the Dionysus we know today. So the fact that these objects recall the whipping motions, but are also child's toys that can remind you of that origin myth was significant and kind of speaks to the symbolism of some of these items and the kind of plurality of interpretations they can each hold.
0: So now looking forward, Your PhD research is still centered on this text, but it's moving to a different area or a a different concern. So what is your research project going to be for the next half decade?
1: Yeah, so I want to obviously research Apollaeus's Apologia. It's wildly under-researched there. It's hardly anyone kind of knows about it. I came across it kind of by accident. But I think it's just the most awesome thing I've ever read. And I want more people to know about it. So my goal is to kind of situate it within the second sophistic, because it's this real piece of rhetoric, real piece of courtroom rhetoric. But that also contains some declamatory elements, like going off on tangents about philosophy and making literary references and whatnot. It's It's this kind of unique piece of rhetoric that was, you know, maybe in real life, you know, we can never be sure. And it's also written in Latin. But is seemingly part of this mostly Greek movement. So I want to kind of examine how does this piece of rhetoric fit in with the larger Second Sophistic Movement, which Apuleius was certainly well educated in. He gave declamatory speeches at many different locations across the Mediterranean and was certainly educated in this form of rhetoric. I want to see how, how the apologia fits in as a kind of real-life snippet of rhetoric in the Second Sophistic period, and also why the choice of being in Latin was important. You know, it seems like it might have been for convenience because it was, it's a Roman colony and it's being judged by a Roman person, but I think that it's significant in that Apollos is a Latin author, just generally speaking, and he's participating in this Greek movement. I also want to analyze how funny Apuleius is, and I want to analyze comedy in courtroom rhetoric in general, because you know there are past authors like Cicero, who are just apparently the funniest, funniest people in the courtroom. You know how he goes off about Mark Antony and just embarrasses him, and then gets killed by Mark Antony because of that. So I want to see where is Apuleius coming from with being so confident and boisterous, and just kind of almost looking like he's not taking these charges seriously when he very well could have been exiled or worse. So I want to take a look at how the comedy actually contributes to the force of his rhetoric rather than taking it away from it. And in addition to that, you know, this text has lots of religious implications and examines magic in a very detailed way that I think can't be ignored. I want to bring in a lot of religious interpretation into my research. And there are also a lot of references to material items, like the mystery tokens, and I want to examine those parts of the Apologia as well. So there are a few things that I want to do, but I could see this going in, in so many different directions across my years of research. For example, this kind of vague definition of magic and philosopher, to be quite frank, that he's playing with the whole time. Also, the situation of Prudentilla as a woman who's being kind of thrown around by these different men in this situation and has nothing to say for herself about it because she can't. I want to look into her character a lot more because I think she's in an interesting position and some of her letters are referenced in the Apologia and she's clearly educated in Greek and is, is a smart woman. I want to see what I can find out about her as well. So I could see this going in so many different directions, which is why I thought it was a great choice to put down in my proposal, because I think that this text has so much potential in so many different ways. But those are the ideas I'm kind of playing with right now.
0: And for people who might be interested in getting into Apuleius, he has another very famous novel called The Golden Ass or The Metamorphosis, which also talks about similar ideas of like magic and sexuality and like cultic practices so that's always a fun read.
1: Yeah it's always hard to talk about Apuleius without mentioning the golden ass but it's it's just this crazy burlesque novel I mean it's really a wild ride. Just to give a brief overview this guy Lucius who has too much curiositas, gets turned into a donkey through a botched magic ritual and the story continues from there. But there are lots of amazing depictions of women and magic and religion in general in that, too. So it's interesting how that ties in with the apologia. That's interesting to look at as well. So I definitely give it a read.
0: And for a big closing question, i like to ask, what does classics mean to you?
1: Classics means so many things for me, but I like studying historical periods mainly because It kind of provides you with a foil through which you can examine your own society today. It's the same human beings, but in this kind of wildly different context. It's interesting to see what stays the same and what is different, how life could be different, how society could be structured differently. I don't think you could even come up with such differences in your own imagination than by studying history. So, I mean, I just, I think that studying classics informs my own life just as much as we try to discover, you know, stuff about their lives. And, um, I just think that that's extremely profound and I have so much fun studying it. Absolutely.
0: Well, best of luck at Cornell and thank you so much for doing this interview with me.
1: Yes. Thank you. Have a good one.
0: You've been listening to my conversation with Sarah Merker about Apuleius and Roman imperial literature during the Second Sophistic. In the new year, I'll be speaking with Keisuke Nakajima about his research on gender and diversity in the ancient world. Specifically, we'll be focusing on inclusion of different sexual orientations and portrayals of femininity and women. Until next time, music for the podcast is produced by Matthew Hawkins, Cover art was designed by Taya Kendall. The podcast is produced with the help of grants from the Arts Undergraduate Society and the Financial Management Committee at McGill University. I'm Cindy Zhang, and thank you for listening to Tell Me Muse.